My name is Larry Costas. I'm a uh, real estate attorney with Swabby uh, Williamson and Wire. I kind of feel like I'm a little bit of a, a native. I've been now in, in Seattle for about 30 years, and in that time, uh, I've seen just incredible uh, growth and development throughout the Seattle um, uh, region, uh, both the downtown and beyond. And I think any of us can really appreciate the innovation that has occurred in all of the development that's, uh, that's happened over these 30 plus years. Uh, John Scholes talked about some of the, what's, what can we expect for the next dec decade? And it's always important to look behind us. Uh, 130 years ago when he had the photographs of the tunnel during our luncheon meeting. And we can only uh, anticipate what the next, again, 20, 30 years or the next 10 years, as our panel is going to uh, discuss. Schwabe is really pleased to be a partner with DSA on these events because it allows us to have these deeper dives into the, um, uh, the, the things that affect our community. Uh, so we're really happy to be here. I also wanted to put a plug in for the City Maker Breakfast series. Uh, we'll also do deeper dives on some of these programs. The next one will be on March 13th, so please put that on your calendar. So as I give a preview to, we're talking about innovative projects. Uh, we have a, a fantastic panel here to introduce uh, and discuss the topic in a little bit uh, greater detail. And in the meantime, uh, I want to introduce our moderator, who is a fellow who put uh, his fingerprints on a lot of the things that have happened within Seattle and a lot of the innovation, Jack McCullough. So please join me in welcoming Jack. Thank, Thank you, Larry. I uh, wanted to say at the beginning here that there was another, there's a missing um, body over here, John Burge, who has been working on uh, a wonderful project in Pioneer Square, uh, was delayed and just landed at SeaTac recently. So I don't know that we'll see him. <laughs> so I'm going to walk through his slides a little bit uh, at the beginning. Yeah. I'm actually Angie. Oh, come on, Angie. Well, I came to watch John. Yeah. Come on, John. Come on, John. Yeah. Well, you can come up and be John. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Come on, Angie. Nice. <clears throat> no, that's okay. Um, and if, if any of the other panelists want to step down and, and call on a substitute, you're welcome to do that, too. Yeah, Adam, right. Adam, could, Adam could come, come up, up and talk, maybe. right? About you and you, right? Yeah. That's good. That's good. Well, she's getting mic'd. Um, so we all. Um, Looking back over the wide sweep of what's gone on downtown over the last three decades or so, you know, we've been dinosaurs much of that time. So back in 1989, there was a citizen's initiative. I don't know if you know, back in the, actually, earlier in the 80s, there was one in San Francisco called Prop M, which um, limited, yeah, all the, the building square footage in town in San Francisco. And it's still in place. That cap remains in place now, 30 years later. So, you know, we watch all these trends come up from California, right? So a couple years later, the Citizens Alternative Plan in 1989 was a citizen initiative that uh, was adopted by the voters by a vote of about two to one. And it, it imposed an annual million square foot cap on development downtown, and it cut all the heights and cut all the densities. Um, just, of course, at the time that the recession of, uh, of 1990 came upon us. So, it was kind of meaningless for a while. Uh, it, um, it also was the first thing that introduced design review in this city, actually. Uh, so we worked for 17 years just to get back to where we were uh, in the 1980s. And in 2006, we got the code amended, and that, that sort of restored the status quo. But I say dinosaurs because in that, in that code amendment in 2006, there were the beginnings of some radical ideas that were starting to percolate to the surface, right? And, and I can remember those debates we had with the city. The staff was coming up with really interesting ideas like slender towers, right? <laughs> Square footage limitations. I mean, we've been building things like Escala and Cristala, you know, which could just sprawl across half blocks residential buildings. Um, looking at things like uh, instead of landscaping, they came up with this thing called a green factor. You know, what the hell was that? And then bicycle parking, really? In our projects? Are you kidding? And we were fighting about tower spacing. But the worst one of all, the worst one, the one that we really got up in arms with, that we, one we thought that the market would completely reject, was the mandatory LEED certification. <laughs> so this was only, this was less than 15 years ago, right? And we were fighting these battles. And I don't know if it was the crucible of the 
of the Great Recession or what. <clears throat> but we came out of that and the world has changed. Um, and that's what we're here to talk about today, is all the ways in which the world has changed and the really interesting and radical things that are happening in the development uh, scenario here in the downtown area. So uh, we're going to go through in uh, alphabetical order. And um, we're going to start actually with John. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we've got some slides here, and I think what we're going to do is, is just uh, kind of walk through the slides a little bit, have each person take a few minutes and do that. Uh, if you have questions, I think we can make this interactive as we go along, so raise your hand, and then after that we'll get a little, uh, little uh, I may ask some questions in between, and then we'll get a little back and forth going. So, sound good? All right. Sounds great. Well, let's start with Pioneer Square. All right. So are we going to see some slides? Uh, yeah, there's, um, hold on a second. Here's the Gucci. Okay. All right. So just a background. So Rail Spur is located in Pioneer Square. It is essentially a full city block between um, First Avenue and Occidental, King and Jackson. So if you can imagine the old FX McCrory's, that's this building on the right-hand side here, and then the Wesson building on the left. Um, I'm not sure what these slides are, so we'll go forward, and then if I need to go back, we'll go back. <laughs> and I just, for fair warning to the panelists, I got into the slide deck last night, and I was able to take some pictures off their social media pages, and I inserted them. So we're going to see what happens as we go along. Not mine. Um, but it's of John. You don't have to worry. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so um, we own three of the five buildings on that block. We own these two buildings, as well as a building just behind, down the alley on the right-hand side, one, um, 115 and 119 South Jackson. It looks like one building. It's technically two buildings. Um, what's unique about Railspur is the fact that we have not built, the, the, the buildings are not built to the property line. So this building right here is the 115, 119 South Jackson. So Jackson's out here. This is 419 Occidental. This is where FX McCrory's used to be. And then the building over here would be our 100 South King building, which is the Weston building. And what's unique is these buildings along here were built uh, with a rail spur. So they're only built 15 feet off the property line. So here, we own all of this property, as well as 15 feet on the Westland side. So we are able to program that space. And that's exactly what we want to do. Um, I'll keep going here and see what's the next slide. It's always exciting to see. <laughs> Can right. you skip one? Okay. One of the things I do want to point out, so this always, aside from FX being on the first floor, it's always been office, um, you know, class B, class C type office. So when, when we first looked at what should we do, um, we had an architecture company that really wasn't known necessarily for commercial architecture. They actually do a lot of higher end homes and whatnot had a competition, and they came back and they said, let's pull the inside out. And so because we own this property, we're able to put this um, stair tower. So that would function as the emergency exit inside of the building, and now it's outside of the building. But what's cool about it is you can also make it an architectural feature. This happens to be an NPS tax credit project. So for purposes of NPS, this is not an architectural feature. It's just an add-on, all right? Um, you can enter the building down here at the first floor. Well, there's a number of entrances. The first floor would be retail, but the office entrance is right here. You'd walk in, and then you can actually walk upstairs and enter the stair tower on the second floor. Um, this is actually the, at the time, it was permitted, and I'm not sure if it's still that way, but at the time it was permitted, it was the tallest CLT structure that had been permitted in, the, um, in Seattle. Mm -hmm. uh, the roof of this, as well as the penthouse roof, is also made of CLT panels. Mm. One of the things I'll say is this thing is, okay, so... Office, first floor retail. Um, we're looking at a market concept on the first floor, somewhere between six and 12 different um, restaurateurs operated by an operator that's gone out and hand-selected very specific restaurateurs in town. Um, he himself is, is a pretty well-known restaurateur, not here locally as much as globally. And um, he's always had a passion to do a market hall. And so he's come in. He's hand-selected the, um, it's about eight different vendors that are gonna participate in the market hall. And um, so we're super excited about that. And then we've got the office. This is a LEED Platinum building, speaking of LEED. Good. Uh, which is essentially the largest historic structure that is LEED Platinum. It actually isn't just a skin and gut kind of a, a project. Um, 
This is also, this has just now started development. We hope this to be a hotel, small boutique hotel. And then the 123, or the 115 South Jackson is down there, you can't really see it. This has a deck here, a deck here, then there'll be some, um, some bar space and some decks up on this, on this building as well. And then the 115, 119 South Jackson is gonna be first floor retail, food and beverage, and then the second and third floor, we're adding micro apartments, which are about 250 to 300 square feet. Ooh. You have a sign up sheet for the audience? We, yeah. trust me, it's a pretty, <laughs> yeah, there's one. It's a pretty yeah, popular one session. So I think yeah. that might be, I thought there was one more. That's not us. Nope, you can back up, there we go. And you missed one, if you go back one. There's okay, so what this one actually shows more than anything, so it, this is slow to respond. <laughs> so this happens to be the seventh floor of that, of the FX McCrory's building, the 419 Occidental building. And when it was built, it was originally added onto the roof of the building. And so there are no windows on the south facing or the east facing wall. Hmm. And so from a, you know, from a leasing standpoint, they're not the most attractive space. It's a little bit dark. So we are adding this penthouse, mezzanine on top here that's glass all the way around that opens up and brings all the light in um, to downstairs. So we're pushing rates on our leasing. We expect to be at the top of the, of the market, and especially in Pioneer Square, and we've got a lot of activity, so I think we can accomplish that. Mm -hmm. All righty? So, um, yeah, you can just leave that there if you want. Uh, and you can sit down if you want. Again, I was just gonna follow up on a couple questions. Um, you know, interestingly, between like 1980 and 2010, um, other than the uh, King County office building that was um, built kind of uh, just off Jackson um, to the east of your site across the street. Uh, there was virtually no capital investment in Pioneer Square for 30 years. So I'm just curious, what when you were looking at this site, buying it, underwriting the project, what did you guys, obviously there have been some change that had started, but yeah. what were you looking at that made you believe that there was a future here? Very good question. So they originally bought, um, the 100 South King building, and that's probably been seven or eight years ago now. Okay. Um, and then they acquired the 419 building maybe a couple years after that, and then 115, 119 South Jackson about three years ago we purchased that. Mm -hmm. um, it was all about the future. Mm -hmm. And you look at what is happening and what was happening across the street in the north lot, clearly there's an upsurge of activity down there. Um, and they just thought that with the uh, location, the proximity to all of the services that are available down there, in terms of rail and mm -hmm. transit, um, that there was just an upside. And then they looked at this opportunity to take this block and do something and give back to the community, because that's super important to them, is that all that public space, so those north-south alleys and the east-west alleys are getting repaved and regraded and made ADA compliant on our dollar. That's not a contribution that the city's making or, or Pioneer Square Alliance. That's actually the developers saying, this is how we're going to do it. Each one of those buildings has openings that will bring people down those alleys and into those retail spaces or into the hotel or into the food and beverage that's there. So. You could see what the North Lot development was going to be when you first Definitely. entered. And so mm -hmm. I assume that was a major factor. Mm -hmm. if, if that hadn't been occurring. Well, you're at the end of Pioneer Square. I, you know, I've right. worked in Pioneer Square for 20 years. I've worked yeah. for Urban Villages for a little over three now. Um, so I'm very familiar with the North Lot right. um, for lots of reasons, but um, you know, you, you get to a point in Pioneer Square and you used to just kind of stop and like turn around and walk the other way. Mm -hmm. And that North Lot, and now with the, um, the new Embassy Suites, there's just a huge difference in the whole vibe on the street. And, mm -hmm. and now we're looking forward to the cruise ship terminal. So right. lots of just really exciting things that are happening down there in the waterfront park. So from a zoning point of view, actually the North Lot by itself was a real innovative approach, right? I mean, it kind of, broke the rules, if you will, for mm -hmm. the district, right? And right. they were able to find a way to do it within the National Park Service guidelines, but right. um, without- Well, it's technically across the street from the district as well. Well, that's right, yeah, yeah. that's right, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. So one other question for you. Um, one of the things I think is interesting about this, when we're talking about innovation, is that you chose a location which is maybe the most resistant to innovation in the entire city. Right? I mean, here you have, there's been no capital investment for three decades. You've got the strictest set of zoning rules that exist in this whole city. And you've got various stakeholder groups, who, some of whom spend all their time trying to make sure that nothing happens. Um, so, so 
but it, you know, great investment decision. It took a lot of guts, obviously. Do you think that the implementing the the innovation and the change was more difficult because of that, or do you think it might have been easier? Oh no, absolutely, it's more difficult for all the reasons yeah. that you just mentioned. Yeah. It is just this constant churn of of you know responding and and just chugging through. But it, it is going to be worth it. Yeah. And actually, with the waterfront, which wasn't on the radar eight years ago, and mm -hmm. with the cruise ship terminal, it makes it you know even more attractive. So yeah. I mean, I think they were just a forward-looking group and and really understood that. Um, you know, they travel worldwide right. and they can see the potential of Pioneer Square and, mm -hmm. and definitely it's turned, there's no doubt about it. Um, certainly in the last two acquisitions, it was on its way towards mm -hmm. what we see now. So mm -hmm. um, it was gutsy, at least the first building. Um, mm -hmm. And after that, I think they just kind of saw the writing on the wall. Right. Excellent. Thank you. Any questions at this stage? Here's one, yeah. So um, I'm Angie Davis. I'm the project manager, senior project manager for Urban Villages. I've been with them a little over three and a half years. Prior to that, I was with another developer that did, a, that did almost exclusively historic renovation. Um, and so that's where I, you know, kind of my passion is those historic buildings. They're wonderful. Yes, they're difficult to work with. And yes, n national parks. But at the end of the day, you have something that, you know, your great-grandfather worked in kind of thing. Um, so anyway, that's my, my history is just I've, I've worked in development forever, and Good. I really enjoy the team, yeah. Good. Thanks. I'm going to hand the baton to Maggie Capel. Thanks. And hopefully the slides will be yours. <laughs> Maggie, do you want to you say a couple words about what, sure. what, yeah, what so you do, who you are? Sure. Um, Maggie Capel, I'm with Alexandria Real Estate Equities. Um, we are a national um, real estate investment trust, and... Um, Seattle is one of the regions where we have, um, we focus on life sciences, and I'll talk a little bit about that and why it makes us a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, you know, I was gonna talk about innovation, sort of our theme, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, how I think Alexandria is innovative in a lot of ways, but one thing that really resonated for me um, is our approach to leasing. As I mentioned, we're, um, we're, uh, we're focused on the life sciences. So a lot of our buildings um, in our Seattle portfolio are in the East Lake neighborhood. Um, this is 188 East Blaine that delivered in 2019. Um, it's a multi-tenant life science building, which is a little bit unique. Um, and it was something that we did really intentionally. Um, so Alexandria, we focus on a cluster model and we want to cluster our buildings and around centers of innovation and um, certainly Seattle has that local expertise from the universities and the research institutes um, and 188 East Blaine um, really has come to embody a lot of what we try to do when we lease uh, to our life science tenants. I hope these are in order. So Maggie can I ask you just sure. to no, pick, okay. uh, expand maybe on one point because yeah. you raise a good one. A lot of the biotech buildings are out there. You think of Zymo and Nordo and, and Juno, which I'm yeah, sure you're talking yeah, about. They, they are largely either, they're either single tenant building, single yep. user, or by far a principal user, right? Exactly. So what, I mean, what do you have to build into the building? What's innovative about, and that's a lot easier. What's innovative yeah. about the approach? What changes do you have to make to the Well, I mean, I think thing? as anybody could say, doing a, a multi-tenant building, and sure, Murphy, yeah. we'll talk about that as there's substantial amount of complexity there. Um, but for us, it's really important because you get a good cross-section on the industry. So we have big pharma, we have research institutes, we have nonprofits. Um, 188 has Life Science Washington sits in that, in that um, building as well. So it's a real convening space and that was really important to us that you can have one building where there's a variety, a real diversity across the whole sector. Mm -hmm. um, and we have, this is the, so it's called, we called it the atrium to begin with. Um, and this is the sort of central meeting area uh, that we built into the space, thinking that it was really important to have a convening space for the, the local cluster to come to host events. Uh, Life Science Washington actually sits right off the, the atrium there. So that's, they're able to then go out and do their work. They can see the tenants on a daily basis. Um, and so that was something we did really intentionally to um, provide that ability to collaborate and communicate regularly and not be sort of the locked away right. um, model. You know, it doesn't, I mean, as we'll talk about in a minute, 400 Exter is the Juno building. Right. Um, 
different model. I mean, it depends also on your space needs. But um, Alexandria, you know, we do like to have small tenants, big tenants, and a, and a good cross-section. Um, so did, uh, did the atrium um, impact your ability to uh, maximize your FAR for the building? Um, no, but yeah. it, I mean, it, we are maximizing FAR. Um, I think there were probably more efficient ways to build yeah, it. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, this is something that yeah. was important to us. And again, I mean, I think there was a decision made to make it multi-tenant yeah. and because that's really what the market needed i think it could have gone single tenant but it's a, it, a again a, a daring move i think in some respects the last i don't know maybe somebody else can think of one but the, the last building i can think that was built with an atrium internally of this scale um, was probably 110 atrium over on 110th in bellevue which was built like in 19 83 yeah. or something and people would walk into it you know and the first thing they want to do when it has sold a few times is can we connect these floor plates yeah right yeah um, but the, the execution you were able to bring lots of light in obviously from different directions yeah and yeah. I mean it does it has an impact on from a landlord perspective certainly I mean you're building that space out it affects your your load factor I mean there's a lot of like reasons right. why you might right. not otherwise do that right. um, you know we we put this cafe in there it's open to the public I've spent time in there you, there are people working in that space um, from other buildings you know tenants mm -hmm. from 1616 East Lake they'll come over here get a coffee have a meeting in that area and East Lake really lacked that before, so right. it has it's done a lot for for the neighborhood Good. in that way. Okay. Um, what else is in here? There we go. There's another shot oh, yeah. of the atrium, um, and that's that this building also has conference facility, um, which, frankly, when you have tenants again of a variety of different sizes, small as well, they they don't. I mean, it's a it's a amenity to them to have building common conference centers. Again, an investment from the landlord, um, but something that we've seen our tenants really embrace and be, um, be, a, be a draw. So 90% or more of developers would look at this image and they'd say, oh my God, that's an energy code catastrophe, right? <laughs> I'm not gonna do that in a million years, but it's really uh, quite stunning. Yeah. I mean, sorry. This is lead gold. So Alexandria is all of our buildings. Um, we have a, I mean, certainly in Seattle mm -hmm. now. That's, I mean, we have a national goal for all of our ground up to be lead gold. In Seattle, we're sort of meeting the expectation, um, but in other markets as well, we we target lead gold. Mm -hmm. um, we also do another standard for us is fit well certification and well um, certification. So other uh, sustainability metrics that we. And, and goals for our for our new new okay. development. Oh, <laughs> talking about other amenities. I've seen one of these. Yeah, the actually, yeah. there. So we yeah. launched this recently, about yeah. a month ago. This is the Alexandria shuttle. There are two. One is black. One is white. You might see them around town. And they pick up at um, um, transit and then drive through town to stopping at 400 Exeter and then continuing on into East Lake. Um, East Lake is a bit of a remote uh, neighborhood yeah. for commuters if you're coming from certain directions. So um, this is something we did as a landlord that is a, a service to our tenants, um, which is, I think, pretty unique. We do it in other markets as well, but pretty unique from a landlord perspective. I don't think there's mm -hmm. a lot of other right. landlords that do that. You know, my only suggestion on this is you might want to add a little legend on the back that says, Call this number to report my driving. Oh, I was my, no, I'm uh -oh. just kidding. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean there's an app, and they can yeah. you can reserve a seat, and you can work. I mean, just like the connector, other yeah. sort of employer-sponsored shuttles. Um, I'm gonna backtrack because okay. I want to talk about 400 Dexter quickly. Bring that out of order. So 400 Dexter. Oops. 400 Dexter <laughs> is uh, another. Uh, relatively recent development for Alexandria in Seattle. It, it's also, it's the Juno building. And I think this has an interesting leasing story as well. Also sort of innovated speaks to how Alexandria approaches um, our, our tenants. Mm -hmm. um, so we leased it to Juno, um, and who was a, basically a startup at the time. Um, and so it was, it, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of landlords would see that as a relative risk. Um, and so one thing about Alexandria that makes us unique is our, um, we have a whole science and tech team on staff who sit around the country and 
um, analyze our tenants, have relationships with the different levels of the scientists on staff, the, the chief scientific officers, and um, help direct our venture capital arm. So we were an early investor in Juno, and I think that helped give us um, the insight to believe in the science and, and understand that it would have legs, and they ultimately ended up taking the whole building. Um, and I think at first it was only like two floors. So it was something that was risky, I think, for a lot of people, but for Alexandria, um, having that sort of long-term relationship with the tenant was important. And part of it was you weren't just doing a credit review, you're saying you're actually getting We were invested the in the company, and, the and um, yeah. you know, I mean, I think had, had, it, it was more about, you know, not our investment, but our our understanding of what their science was and where we thought it would go. And right. clearly, you know, immuno-oncology has become this, um, I mean, Seattle's been become the center for that, right? Um, right? And is nationally recognized for what the work Juno's done. And then I think just lastly, I'd talk about a little bit about our ground floor. This is mm -hmm. the collective. This mm -hmm. is, um, oh, there's another one. Um, it's uh, the collective is our uh, retail experience, you could call it, at 400 Dexter, and it's a um, it's a they call it an urban base camp concept, and the idea is that people want to have a place other than their house and other than their office where they can go and have meetings and have coffee or have lunch and um, or dinner and. Um, convene with colleagues and, and have sort of another venue. Um, so is it a membership-based model? It is membership-based, uh -huh. but it is it is reasonable. Yeah. Um, it's run by Club Corp, which um, this is their sort of first urban model. Um, and I think it's been really successful. It's unique. Um, I think it offers something that certainly South Lake Union did not have previously. Club Corp runs a Columbia Tower Club yes. here in town. Yeah. yeah. I think that might be it. And you, do a lot of your tenants use it? A climbing wall. Um, you know, I mean, is there? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting. So Juno, certainly a lot of Juno uh, employees are members, um, but I've seen, you know, there's a lot of Amazon employees, Facebook mm -hmm. employees who have recently come into the neighborhood, um, Skanska employees. I see you guys yeah. there a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, it's really, really um, great. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 just a, it's a unique experience. I think a, you know South Lake Union. Otherwise, I think from a retail perspective, doesn't have a lot of places where you, you know. You want to have a work meeting? You go to a Starbucks or a right. coffee shop. It's it's a little you're like oh I hope we get a table kind of thing, right. and you know you're not really sure what you're getting. Right. Um, or the the bar scene is I think it it skews younger, and mm -hmm. I think this offers a nice um, nice alternative. Right, right. There's enough biotech and tech companies though that I would think that you'd want to have a, a non-solicitation clause in the membership agreement, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, just I think to... that actually goes against the concept, though, <laughs> of, kidding. you know, bringing everybody together. Yeah, right. and yeah, yeah. No, I get it, though. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's all. Yep. Great. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Any questions for Maggie yet? We'll come back and do some Q&A a little later. No? Okay. Murph. Okay. Cool. This is the uh, uh, this is the McCullough side of the oh. <laughs> <laughs> the operation over no, here. No relation. Yeah, no relation. Think, yeah, no relation. We're not totally yeah. sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, ancestry. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do, yeah. You, do you have your DNA test? I have. I have. I have mine. We oh, could like do. share. Oh. Could... <laughs> That's for after. The We're going to do this yeah. offline, guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay, yeah, yeah go. good, yeah, that's uh, really helpful. <laughs> so I'm Murph, Murph McCullough. I run Skanska's uh, development operations here in the Northwest. Um, helped uh, open up the office in 2011. Um, Skanska bought a BA in like 2001 on our construction side, but we did not start doing development here until about 2011. Um, and so I've not seen these slides. So at first, um, mm -hmm. I'm just going to walk through a little bit. Um, very, very close to 400 Dexter. This is 400 Fair, fair Review. Um, if anybody has seen this, the funny thing is we, we, we're like often talking to, to tenants and we're asking them if they've been, been here. And they typically say no. And then we say, it's the MBAR building. And they're like, oh, yeah, totally. We, we know that space. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how your building gets branded from your retail. And, you know, we... Our mission is to try to figure out how to solve our customers' issues and problems. And their biggest issue is attracting and retaining the best. And so how can we create something that is going to help them do that? And so at 400, we created this great ground floor market hall 
with like restaurants, bars, cafes, Kai, Kai Markets in there, that's a Wajamaya smaller concept, and just created this really special space. Um, and the building leased up faster and at, at like higher rents at the time than like anybody else. So um, we typically do focus on multi-tenant buildings. We tend to, um, Skanska is a little bit different. We fund everything 100% cash from our own balance sheet internally. And so we don't have any outside equity, no outside debt. And what that really means is nobody is controlling us. Nobody's trying to say that's a little too out of the box or don't take that much risk. We can actually go do whatever we like want. We, of course, go through a board and have to prove to them it's going to work. But we tend to go the extra mile to actually serve our customers. Um, so you, you can see the market hall uh, here. We did um, punch three giant holes, you can see, through the building um, mm -hmm. to try to get natural light. We're a Swedish company, so we're often traveling you know, to uh, Europe and different countries. And that was one thing. We actually spent a lot of, lot of time. All the market halls we saw that we really, really liked had natural, natural light. So this, these, these holes are actually punched through the podium floors. And those podium floors are just giant office floors. Mm -hmm. So it, it not only lit these lower floors, but it created some great natural light in the office space, too. Mm -hmm. So were there any uh, analogs in terms of um, uh, these market halls that you found in the United States, or uh, was it mainly a European? Yeah, I mean, go to the market, Pike, Pike yeah, Place so, Market, yeah, of right. course. And yeah, I mean, um, there's definitely plenty of them in New York we saw. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, all of, I mean, really, most of them do provide <laughs> some sort of natural light. Right. Um, Right. Yeah, and we've seen we've seen some folks actually provide some really great artificial light that feels like natural light. So you mm -hmm. can still do it if you mm -hmm. don't punch a hole, but it's just a little harder to make it look natural. So what's the tenant reaction been to the market hole? You know, we uh, yeah, the tenant reaction. I mean, that's why most of them are there. I mean, we we marketed the like hell out of this ground floor, and. <laughs> You know, almost every single tenant that came in here was just absolutely enamored with coming into this building because of what what was on that ground floor and the amenity. Um, you know, and we tried to not make it just stop on the ground floor. You know, we we have a rooftop restaurant at the top. You know, retail's FAR exempt down below, and so when you put a when you put a a restaurant at the top, it's actually FAR that could be office, and office pays a lot more rent. But when you really look at trying to do something special up there, you know, we're gonna drive rents, it just takes a little bit, a few, a few cents of rent with the whole building really? to easily yeah. get your rent back and do something mm -hmm. special on the, on the top, top yeah, The interesting thing too is that innovation, this is a good example of how innovation breeds imitation. Um, mm -hmm. And you've seen this, I can't uh, think of how many times <coughs> We see de new development projects come up since 400 Fairview, where people have been talking about their ground floor retail, and they will say, "Well, we want to make it like 400 Fairview, yeah. right?" And the designer view board or whatever will go, "Oh, that's really good. Yeah, you got a seal <laughs> of approval for that, right?" But if you do something well, execute it yeah. well, and it succeeds, then other people are going to copy you, and it becomes a trend. Yeah, and I mean a few other things that I mean it really is a risk mitigation strategy too. I mean it's not just all because we have the money and we can we can do, do it. I mean if you do something like this, you lease your building up faster at higher rates. We we also had a big push for the zoning to to not be as high on this side of the street because the city was going through a rezone. And so right. we actually thought doing something really spe special would also really help us make sure we got, we got the zoning. So mm -hmm. it was, and I think this was the first building built with the new zoning too. So we engaged mm -hmm. with the city and helped them with the code and were able to do some of these like things without um, losing FAR. Right. So. In fact, you had your plans all complete before the zoning was even adopted. We, we took the risk. Yeah. We, we went all the way, yeah. yeah. Your point about risk mitigation is interesting because a lot of developers look at it the other way, right? Correct. And I mean, they look at retail, like you see, not just at the rooftop, but at the ground level as something um, that they can't avoid because the city tells them, hey, you need to have some retail here, but it cannibalizes your office returns yes. or you have to subsidize it and it sort of eats into your bottom line, whereas you're yes. looking at it from an innovation point of view completely yeah. In the reverse. Yeah, and we're, I mean, our rates, we definitely underwrite from day one when we go to our board. 
you know, low, low rates and, and high TIs because we're trying to create the amenity and you easily get it back up in your rate if you do something really special on the ground, ground floor. I'm talking about the office like rate. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it definitely, it definitely works, but it requires some faith and, and some like times folks don't have that faith, right. you know. So right. um, here's just a few more images. This is, this is MBAR at the top of the building. We do have some covered open space um, at the bottom. Also, these, these are uh, giant panel doors, and there's two of them here, and there's, there's two on the, on the other side of the hall. So during the summer, there's lots of natural uh, air flow going through the whole hall, too, uh, along mm -hmm. with the natural light. Full disclosure, I stopped going to MBAR. Because <laughs> I, I, I walk in there and I, I feel my age, right? <laughs> it's a little LA-ish. Yeah, yeah. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't like the lobby of the W Hotel yeah. in Bellevue. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's not quite yeah. there, but yeah. it's, yeah. But yeah, during a summer like day, it's just amazing, yeah. yeah. Uh, two and you, am I taking too much time? No, am keep I on going. Right? No, we're doing good. Um, this project actually was one of the first projects we started working on in 2011. We actually um, started working with Adam, uh, who owns the land with Samus. Um, it's on a ground, ground lease. And I think it wasn't until 2013, 2014 until we really got a deal together. Um, but it's a massive office building, about 700,000 square feet. Um, you know, again, we are trying to solve our customers' problems. How can we do something different? And every, everyone knows a build, building first by the ground floor. And so you know, we are trying to find that place between the, the community, the city, and our tenants, where just everybody wants it. And this, we needed a uh, alley vacation. Um, we had, I think, every entitlement known to man to get through here. Um, thank God. And yeah. so we did a design. Thank God. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was doing yeah, legal yeah, work on yeah. this thing. <laughs> Full disclosure again. <laughs> well, actually, you know, I mean, one of the sources of the innovation is Burke yeah, could come in and exactly. say, well, have it if we do this. And I said, I can think of another permit. So why don't we do this too, right? <laughs> um, so we did a design competition. Um, on the uh, east side of the block, it's a dock one zone, which, mean, which means it has unlimited height. So you can, you can stack the FAR as high as you want. I think the FAA will get on your case at some yeah, point. But, yeah. um, and on the, on the west side, it's a 240-foot DMC zone. But what this really means is we were able to lift the building up and put it on columns and get, it's kind of hard to see, but across the street here is a Harbor Steps that comes all the way to here. But if you can get this office building up above Harbor Steps, you're going to get huge views, and those huge views command much higher rents. And if you have much higher rents, you can pay for an exorbitantly expensive lift in, in a retail village and an arts and cultural village down below. So I've always um, wanted to ask, you know, when you, <laughs> when you take this to the investment committee, right, and you're making that pitch, I mean, are they taking you seriously? Are we going to put the building up on, <laughs> on 80-foot tall stilts, and we're going to spend an extra $15 million or something doing it? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, when it's, no, when I it's mean, never been done before in the market. Yeah, I mean, Skanska loved it. They yeah. just thought, I mean, really, like we, in a big company, there's like 60,000 folks. I mean, we, we're spending so much cap, capital that we have a path all the way to the top. Right. So by the time it went to the board, we had been talking to like everyone. Right. And we, 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 we had plenty of folks standing up there looking uh -huh. down at the site and you know and everyone right. was like really excited about this and in fact i mean this is the largest investment skanska has ever had anywhere in the world and it's wow. and it's 100 percent cash um and it's 100 percent lease and it's 100 percent lease so we think more, it's, more important yeah, yeah more important yeah. we think it's the first multi-tenant big office tower to be leased prior to opening mm -hmm. in the city's history i i you may yeah, you may be. you may know yeah. but um yeah. We haven't it been able to find close, another yeah. one. IDX Tower may have been a little close, but um, so the the interesting thing, which was more interesting, was everyone from the board flying in from Sweden, from all over the world, and I'm thinking here like, oh my God, we have no leasing. We're spending four hundred million dollars. In fact, they're just coming because they're so pumped with how cool this building is. So, <laughs> so it's pretty cool. Um, so you can see that this is about an eighty-five foot lift. Uh, these are columns here on first. And then on um, second, it's about 65 feet because of the slope. So when does the retail open? 
we have Ladro Coffee uh, opening in about a month. Ethan okay. Stoll is doing his third Tavolata on site, um, which should open up in April. Um, all the tenants are building out their space now from, from the office side. Um, so I think Spaces opens up in about a month, and then Dropbox in a couple months, mm -hmm. and then Indeed, and then mm -hmm. Qualtrics. Mm -hmm. And all this will be sort of open to the public, that whole? The whole, yeah. I have a few level. more pictures okay. in here. Yeah, you can see. see some of them. But it is, you know, we do have these beautiful wood soffits. This is white, uh, white uh, ash that you can see here and here. And it's all uplit at night. So if you're like blocks away, you walk down the street and you just see this glowing. You're just like, what is that? I mean, building this, we had, people, we had folks stopping on the street going, what? is this thing. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> but there's five separate ways. It's really hard to capture in pictures, but there's five separate ways to get in and through the site. So I mean, we, we absolutely want to invite everyone in and through this site. Um, and you know, we, ha we have a lot of retail inside in the middle of this. And so it's absolutely critical that we get people inside this like, space. So mm -hmm. um, we have two, two entrances you can get up uh, here on first, there's there's another grand stair here um, on first. There's uh, alley connection, and then there's two off of second that you can get into the space. Okay. These are just real pictures mm -hmm. um, that I just grabbed a few of them um, from like Instagram. But you can see we try to keep the, we try to get this common language of the wood. This is actually a retail wood soffit. And, and almost every retail space has this wood soffit language, kind of like a, the village you'd see in Europe. So as you walk through the space, you see you know, all of these different buildings. And then all the retail spaces are like indoor, outdoor. So um, all nano walls. So in the summer, they're all going to open up, and you can hang out indoor, outdoor. Um, and there's about a half of an acre of uh, uh, protected open, open like space. So even though you're outside, you have the building above. So Fall, spring, when it's actually not that cold, but it's raining, you can have a place to hang out. Yeah. Cool. A few more pictures. Uh, we also built a side. This is called a sire wall. It's kind of like an earthen wall. Um, and it, it's really hard to take a picture of because um, it's really long. It goes actually from first to second. We think it's the largest structural sire wall in the world, and it's meant to be this piece that really grabs your attention. So if you're walking down first or second, you'll see this and it'll draw you up into the space. Mm. Uh, but it was built in lifts, like eight inch lifts. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really meant to be like, uh, like the Cliffs of Woodby Island, mm -hmm. um, where it's this very Northwest experience. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this, it, I, soon this whole thing will just open up and anybody can walk through it. But it's really going to take a year before we get all the retailers in and this really comes alive. We have, um, DSA is actually our partner. I'll get to this in a minute. DSA is actually our partner to help us program this space um, for like events. You know, we're coming up with all kinds of ideas, mm -hmm. but most likely movies and concerts um, cool. and uh, Oktoberfest. <coughs> and we do have a space. Um, a free artist space that's about 1,100 square feet that artists can like use. Our artists are being priced out of the city. And so since we're right next to the art museum and the symphony hall, um, we did provide that space. Good. And so um, Shum, Shim, Shin Pike is our partner there helping us to program that. Okay. And this is parking. I know it seems a little funny to put this in, but what this is is a drive aisle. This doesn't look like a drive aisle. So this is a very unique stacker um, parking system, we gained about 70 stalls for about $10,000 each, which is pretty cheap when, when they typically cost you know, many, many multiples of that. Mm -hmm. So our entire bottom floor is, has stackers over absolutely everything. So as cars drive in, these, these come up, and this becomes the drive aisle, so, mm -hmm. um, which, which we've never seen before to have stackers over the drive, <coughs> drive aisle. And why, mm -hmm. while this is important, or why that this is important is because if you can't figure out how to build your garage in a reasonable manner, you can't put the money up into the building to make it exceptionally special. And so, you know, parking is something on every single job, especially in Bellevue. We have a Bell Bellevue Tower right now that if you can't figure out how to cost effectively mm -hmm. get your parking built, you know, you're really not going to 
be able to do something special. But you had to build your lower lowest parking floor with a higher floor to floor height. Correct. Right. Correct. In order to, yes. Right. So, so there was some not, additional not quite marginal, double height, but yeah, little marginal cost in the the concrete and structure. Right? Correct. Yeah. I'm sorry. So are those uh, automatic? They you have to push a push push like a button for these to go up. But okay. each car each car like in the morning these will these will be down. Yeah. Cars will drive drive in. All these will go up, and then a car will drive into the next bank, go up. So they'll do the drive aisles first, and then they start doing the sides. So you'll, you'll it's all ballet. ballet. Yeah, it's ballet. all ballet. So yeah, yeah. So nobody, nobody's right. actually going to use these themselves. Everyone's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. Anything yeah. else? That would be scary. Yeah. Right. Yep. That is private. Okay. That, that, that's indeed private uh, At the top space. of the building, yeah. you mean, right? It's a, yeah, it's a double height space with a giant deck, and the view is just insane. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. really, really great. Um, you know, it, but it if is. If you go to work for Indeed, then you'll have a chance to enjoy you it. You will, yeah. Yeah, yeah I watched, you know, I lived uh, second in Pike, and I watched the Oh, you did, yeah. yeah. And I watched that space, and I thought, oh, that's yeah. going to be a great right. common area of space. That, um, we, we thought about it having com being, being a com common area. So, when you do these big towers, it it starts making you think different, just the risk and things. And when you ha when you build a very special space like that, you're going to get somebody that's just going to have to like have it, right? And we had everybody, yeah, right. and we had so many folks who wanted that space, but of course we're not going to just lease them that space. They need to lease another 200,000 feet with it, and that's exactly what happened. So. Good. Okay. Doesn't really want it. Nope. 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 Great. Thank you, Murph. Yeah. Any questions? This is for Jordan. So next uh, and last, we're going to hear from Jordan Seeley. Back over here. Jordan, you want to say a couple words about who you are and what you do, what Absolutely. your company does? Um, and first, I'd like to say that every time Murphy and I have lunch, <laughs> I tell him that in my next life, I'm going to develop without any uh, debt. <laughs> I can tell you there are very few people in the real estate world who build a $400 million building without any debt. And we don't have any partners. That makes us pretty unique. But to not have partners, equity partners, or debt is out of uh, extraordinary. It means that he can afford to make mistakes that I can't afford to make. Um, but even though he can afford it, he still does everything perfectly. And he I don't has think so. No. <laughs> uh, close to perfectly, and he has a habit of building buildings within two blocks of where we build our buildings, um, which is good for us as far as I'm concerned. The, the flip side of the debt issue, as you imply, is that his investment committee is a lot bigger than your investment committee. That's very true. Yeah. That's very true. But they're Swedish. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah right. My husband is Swedish, so yeah, I can say that. Right. Um, so my name is Jordan Selig, and I'm the EVP of Martin Selig Real Estate. It's a family-owned, privately-run development and management company. We're fully integrated top to bottom. We do everything from janitorial to security. We have architects in-house, engineers. We have a new development team in-house at the moment because we have eight different projects in various stages. I'm going to run you through just a few of them today, uh, starting with the ones that are under construction currently. This is one of my favorite projects. It's truly a passion project for me. It's only a few blocks away from 400 Fairview. Mm -hmm. The address is 400 Westlake. If you drive by, what you will see today is only the existing facade from the Firestone Tire building. This is going to be, the big tagline here, is that this is going to be the most sustainable building of its size and type in the entire United States. So by size, I mean over 200,000 square feet. So you always talk about your projects when we have lunch. Now you get to hear about yeah, us. Yeah, um, captive audience. So this is, by size, I mean over 200,000 square feet. By type, I mean commercial office. This is not owner-occupied. It's not the Apple campus. It's not the Google campus. Those are great projects. I have nothing but good things to say about them. But we're proving also an economic point here that you can build a deep green building and make money with it. Um, 
the way that we are justifying the premium to build a building like this is through the Living Building Pilot Program. It's specific to Seattle. It says that if you make uh, these sorts of green commitments, they have to do with water and energy, that you can get 25% more commercial square footage and 30 extra feet in height. That's huge for us. That means that the top two floors we would not have gotten without this pilot program. That's the most valuable real estate, as anybody knows. It's the unobstructed views. It's the rooftop deck, uh, 20 feet or 30 feet higher. In any case, this is the heart of South Lake Union. And uh, the building will produce more energy than it consumes. We're doing that through a solar farm partially on the roof of the building, but partially in uh, Oregon in a city called Prineville. Also, we will be collecting rainwater on the roof to use within the building. We'll be recycling all of the water within the building. These are, these are big goals to accomplish when you're talking about a single family home. They are huge goals to accomplish when you're talking about a 220,000 square foot office building. It took us 16 months of working with Glumac, Glumac is an engineering firm, and Perkins and Will is the architecture firm, and Lise Crutcher Lewis, 20, sometimes 30 people in a room trying to solve these problems, trying to figure out how do we achieve these goals. Uh, it took a lot of hard work and a lot of creative thinking, but now we're permitted. So Jordan, I've got a question for you. You know, most of the, um, this is novel in another way for a living building. Um, the early adopters of the living building, something the Bullet Foundation and 34 stone, mm. um, we're effectively single tenant buildings. Yeah. So you're doing, you know, basically one lease and you can build all of the provisions dealing with sustainability into that lease. Mm -hmm. um, a, do you have a tenant for the building? And if not, then if this is gonna be a multi-tenant building, I mean, how do you wrap your head around that? Is, I mean, it seems like enormous risk to me. It's a, it's a great question. Uh, <laughs> this building can even suit a biotech tenant because of the high ceilings. And the HVAC system, it's a chilled beam system instead of a heat pump system. It's much more efficient. It's also a little bit more complicated. Um, I was just having a conversation the other day with Glumac about the submeters because we are planning on, if we don't find one tenant to take the whole building, we'll multi-tenant it. And since we need to achieve these goals in reality, not just on paper, we need to be able to identify where the problems are coming from if somebody's not forgetting to turn out the lights, for example, or if you know, there's an electrical issue within the building. So we'll be sub-metering spaces. It means that we have to have, you know, we have to pay for the extra meters. But um, mm -hmm. it's a cost that we are willing to bear because it means if there's an issue, we'll be able to identify exactly where it is and fix it. Um, we have on staff at Martin Seelig Real Estate two people whose full-time job it is to man manage just the energy consumption across our entire portfolio. It is a big job to do that these days. We've recently won a couple of awards for the energy efficiency of our portfolio. And that's saying quite a bit because Martin Seelig Real Estate builds to hold buildings that we have that were, purchased, that were built in 1972, 73, 74. They are still in the portfolio. They are performing better than many buildings that came online within the past three years. So not to brag, but it is something that I'm particularly proud of being a millennial, being somebody who is uh, an environmentalist and feels very strongly about sustainability. There's another challenge here uh, and you might talk about. I, I had a number of clients who were looking at this site before uh, you guys bought it. And universally I said, don't buy this site because it's gonna get landmarked. That's what you told, that's what you told, told me. I know I told you that, right? Well, was I right, right? So then Martin, who's sitting over here, Martin calls up and, and says, well, I'm looking at this. And I said, Martin, don't buy that parcel because the building is gonna get landmarked. And then about, I don't know, two weeks later or something, Martin calls me and says, guess what I just bought? And I said, God damn it, Martin. You didn't. I can't even tell you how many times that's happened to me, Jack. I know. <laughs> but that's a whole other layer um, of complexity. Um, yes, it is a huge layer of complexity. It's not our only landmarked project. Um, we have to keep the facade in place. It's much easier if the Landmarks Board says to you, you have to keep the facade, but you can take it down, you put it into storage. When you're ready, you bring it back. Way easier 
This means the fact that it has to stay in place means that we have to structurally enforce it so that it doesn't collapse during construction. Mind you, this facade is made out of terracotta. <laughs> terracotta, over time, turns into sandstone, more or less, mm -hmm. due to the water penetration. So we have prepared to um, recreate the terracotta facade with a carbon fiber material if and when pieces of it do fall off during construction. Uh, for a number of months, we had um, people on site standing on scaffolding using literally what looked like uh, super glue guns. They were this big and toothbrushes to fill in the cracks and smooth over, um, smooth over right. what you see. It's a painstaking, painstaking process. Right. Good. <laughs> okay. Oh, wait. I'm in control here. Yes, you are. <laughs> This is a cross section of the building. And in the interest of time, I'm going to tell you about another one of our projects that's under construction. It's a little bit farther along, totally different location. It's on Second Avenue between Spring and Madison on the west side. So this is just uh, one block away from the Two and U building that Murphy was just talking about. This is another very unique project because it's on the National Register of Historic Places, meaning the preservation narrative wasn't just 100 pages long, it was 500 pages long. We had to preserve the facade, also internal elements of the building. For example, mm -hmm. this, uh, this is a vault door. <laughs> it weighs a true ton, and you can move it with two fingers because it's perfectly balanced. And there are two of these inside the building. They have to stay in the building exactly where they have always stood. We cannot move them. And the vaults were built to withstand the atomic bomb. It takes 100 man hours to drill through one of the walls. Uh, I know that because we had to drill through one of them in order to create an extra exit for the fire code. But true story. Wow. There's a shooting range in the building, too. There was a shooting range. <laughs> right, there so. is no more. So, um, you know, you'll yeah. have to go to a kickboxing class if yeah. you need to get out <laughs> your energy. Right. Uh, we, um, let's see, there was a money shredder in the building when it was purchased. So along with uh, the building itself, we got bags of shredded money. <laughs> 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 and I keep telling, I keep telling the, the brokers, if you bring us a tenant to fill the whole thing, we'll give you all of the shredded money right. <laughs> right, as yeah. your commission. Right. Um, so the Federal Reserve Building and 400 Westlake are both being built on spec. Um, and they are both being built so as to accommodate one large tenant or multiple tenants. Um, in general, our portfolio consists of mostly multi-tenant buildings with a few exceptions. Um, and the tenant base is very diverse. I mean, that's another thing that makes Martin Seeley Real Estate very unique is that um, we don't specifically cater to the biotech tenant. We don't specifically cater to lawyers or doctors. We do everything. We don't discriminate. Uh, right now, we're even branching out into residential. And I'll tell you about another one of our projects that incorporates apartments in just a second. This is purely office. I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah, it's pretty good. I think that's yeah. about it. All right. <clears throat> Moving on to the cross section. Speaking of uh, mixed use, this is the largest project that we have in our development pipeline right now. It is not under construction yet, but we plan on breaking ground at the end of the year. We just had our one of, um, I think it may have been the very last design review meeting on mm -hmm. Tuesday I, evening. Yep, should be. That yep. was it, great, yep. we're done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so 800 Laskin is a full city block. It's directly across from the ferry dock, unobstructed views of the water. It will consist of approximately 220,000 square feet of office plus approximately 100 residential units on top. Right now, we as a company are starting to develop apartments, starting to think about how to brand those apartments, not just individually uh, as individual buildings, but also as a collection. Um, we, at this point, are thinking that we, we're, we are going to push the market in terms of uh, quality. We've always prided ourselves on doing that with office, so we plan on doing the same with the apartments and um, establishing a management company to manage them as well. 
About 100. So Jordan, it's often the case uh, under the zoning code here in the city that you'll run out of FAR for your office before you run out of height. And so a lot of developers downtown reach the point where they've, you know, they finished their office building and they've still got perhaps hundreds of feet that of theoretical capacity and residential doesn't count against your FAR. So, um, but you can count on the fingers of one hand the number of true vertical mixed use buildings, office right. and residential that have been built down here in the last 30 or 40 years. <laughs> um, how much more complicated is that to figure out? I mean, other people <laughs> aren't doing it and uh, from an innovation point of view, you know. I personally don't think it's complicated. I, again, as a millennial, I think urban density makes all the sense in the world. It just means that you need to put in another elevator bank and maybe build a few more parking stalls. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think of it as being complicated. It's mm -hmm. the highest and best use. The zoning code mm -hmm. allows you to throw apartments or condos, as the case may be, on top of your office or hotel. You see people doing hotel plus condo. We happen to prefer office plus apartments. Um, it makes all the sense in the world. Good. I don't mean to d dismiss no, your no, it's question. A, it's, no, you're not. Um, this is one of two examples. We also have a building under construction right now at 3rd and Lenora that was previously leased entirely to We Work and We Live, now no longer. Uh, that is also a mixed-use project with about 200,000 square foot feet of office plus 22 floors of residential on top. But that's not in this presentation, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Uh, so this is 800 Alaskan. Mm -hmm. And what you see here is how it connects directly to the pedestrian bridge to the ferry dock. There will be a staircase that leads um, from this pedestrian bridge down to Western Avenue. And on the ground floor, we are also, I'm sorry to say it, planning a market food hall of sorts. We'll have uh, my thinking is that Western Avenue is actually going to be the Fifth Avenue of Seattle one day due to the waterfront renovation and just the sheer number of projects along the waterfront. So we are planning mm -hmm. accordingly. Good. I didn't know that I was only supposed to present two projects, so you get four for the okay. price of two. Right. Um, <laughs> this is the last one I'll talk to you about. It's 401 Queen Anne block away from Key Arena, 160,000 square feet of office space plus ground floor retail. These renderings, I'm sorry to say, are somewhat outdated. What we did at the request of the design review board was we added core 10 steel fins to the building in order to add materiality and help it to fit in characteristically with the neighborhood. Um, something I'd like to show you here is that we are uh, copying Murphy a little bit by adding a light well. That yellow penetration runs through the top floors of the building so as to bring additional natural light into the office floor plates. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take away from our ability to maximize FAR. We never sacrifice office FAR for anything else as a rule because that's our bread and butter. But um, we, you know, this isn't, this is a, a clever way of adding architectural character to the building that's not visible from the street because what we heard from the design review board was that you know we need to we can't go too crazy architecturally we have to kind of fit with the character mm -hmm. of lower queen anne so this was very clever and what we may do underneath the light well is put a large sculpture piece of artwork mm -hmm. and I hope this was, oh, here are a few slides that actually correspond with 400 West. Like, I don't know why they ended up here, but um, you can see them on our social media pages. You can see them on our website. You can see them on the building itself. In fact, uh, these are just clever images that tell the story of 400 West, like the first project that I talked about mm -hmm. and, how it, um, and how it works. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Good. Thank you <laughs> very much. Questions for uh, Jordan? Murph, you want to come back up here for a second? We've got a couple more minutes. And one question I wanted to ask all of you, and you guys can jump on it, is, you know, there's, um, it seems to me like there's potentially a tension between innovation and development and sort of lasting design, right? I mean, there are some, some buildings you go by, right, and you look at and you go, 
that building was built in the 1980s, right? I know that. And it will always be a building that was built in the 1980s, right? Um, do you guys worry about that, about anything you're doing? Um, I mean, do you worry about the retail? You're obviously, for example, you know, you're all investing a bunch in these ground floor spaces. Do you, are you worried about them becoming sort of outdated or? Are you looking at me? No, I'm just any of you, <laughs> any of you. I just, you know, yeah, I mean, these um, are big investments. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is always a discussion mm -hmm. uh, and, and from pretty much every level, you know, mm -hmm. from you know, how the building looks to how the retail is programmed and the spaces are created to how it's, it's how the operations are going to work. I mean, we, unfortunately, the one thing that we end up doing is we do end up selling everything at the end of the day because we, since we don't use debt and outside equity, we have to recycle that capital. So for us, since we are such long-term focused, even though we're selling built buildings, we are always trying to figure out how we can set this up operationally and get partners like DSA and Shinpike. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's going to mm -hmm. just go, it's going to continue to be operated the right way. But, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we've, we, we've laughed when we go to Sweden or in some of these other places and you see this syncopated design on, like, all these buildings and they're already out of date. Mm -hmm. It seems like almost. So right. it, it really is something we, we try to focus on and create something that's time, timeless. But... Any other thoughts? It's going to happen. You know, yeah. I definitely have thoughts yeah. on that topic because I have the pleasure and privilege of working with my father and something that he has taught me is that if you always build for quality and put quality above any other priority, then you end up with a product that survives for not just years but for decades. Of course, you have to put the necessary funds and attention to detail into maintaining and renovating the building over time. But if you do it right from the get-go, you won't have to tear it down and rebuild in 30 years or 40 years. Mm -hmm. And many people do that. Um, I think it's a long-term perspective that can really, I mean, it's easier to justify when you build to hold, when you're never, mm -hmm. when the mindset is, definitely. I will never sell. Yeah. It's definitely easier to justify. Any other? I mean, I, I would echo, you know, Alexandria holds for the long term similarly. So that's always a focus that this is something we're going to own and we want to be proud to own for the next 30 years. That's how we look So at that it. leads me to maybe what will be the last question because we're just about out of time. Um, is my observation, and I just want to test it on you guys, uh, that, that there are different kinds of developers in the world that come in different flavors, right? And there are those who are self-financed um, and those who just build and hold, right, who are focused on what you... Are talking about and then there's you know more the merchant developer class who's using other people's capital and you know who are going to be building it and flipping the project I mean everybody serves a purpose in the ecosystem right um, but my observation has been that you're more likely to find innovation in all of these areas from people who are um, building to hold who are self-financed uh, than you are people who are just sort of secondarily building for other capital. I don't know, do you, would you agree with that or do you think that's? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Murphy said it earlier, but you have another group to justify the decisions that you're making, mm -hmm. right? To, you have to justify it to them. Mm -hmm. And if you, and with the, the near-term flip, right, of a property, you're really focused on what's your IRR and what's your profit gonna be. Mm -hmm. And if you don't invest the extra million, two million, three million, four million, whatever it is, in making the building innovative or investing in quality materials, then that's profit that goes right back into your pocket. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you have a longer term perspective, then you're willing to invest that extra capital. So, in, so the implication there is that the life cycle of the return on the extra investment may be longer than one or two or three yeah. years. Oh. Yeah. Any other? Uh, questions here? I don't want to keep everybody because I think we have a, uh, a session outside, right? And I'm, uh, I think at this point, uh, we're standing in the way of some libations. So I want to give the, uh, I want to give a hand to our wonderful panel here today.